May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of, words of life to us, our God. Amen. Far too many years ago, Bonnie and I, when I was in theological college in Auckland and when we were first married, did the Bethel Bible Study course. This was a course that uh, over two years took you through the Old Testament, the New Testament. Um, it was a great course to help you work out how the story of the Bible worked and where all the books fit into that story. Um, and it, it helped, but we had, each week had a, a workbook we had to read through. We had a whole lot of cards which had um, Bible chapters on it and then a kind of very pithy, short, short description of what was in that. For example, Genesis 12, blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing was the tagline for Bethel. Genesis 12, blessed to be a blessing, is probably the only one of those cards I can remember off the top of my head. I raise it today for a couple of reasons. First is, that is the first time the covenant between Abram and God is talked about. The second time is in the reading we heard today from Genesis 15. The third time is in Genesis 17, the story of when the strangers visit Abram and Sarai and uh, he welcomes them as he as custom dictates uh, and uh, they then reaffirm the covenant. And while in today's reading it's not quite framed as blessed to be a blessing, what it does affirm is that this covenant is it rests on God alone, on God's faithfulness alone. There is Abram hasn't done anything. Sure, his faith in the promise of the covenant is is uh, I mean that's that's righteousness. God God sees that as righteousness. But I mean the covenant isn't there because of what Abraham believes. The covenant was already there. This is God's promise to Abraham and through Abraham to humanity and creation and it rests on God. That's a theme that Paul picks up as we saw when we went through Romans. That the covenant rests on God alone. Although you've got to wonder what was in the fiery pot that made Abram kind of fall into a terrifyingly deep sleep. The covenant is so important. Blessed to be a blessing. It's important because we're really bad at remembering that that's what the covenant is about. For a lot of us we think we're blessed because we are a blessing. We've done something. We've earned this. No. In this week's story from Genesis 15, it's clear that this rests simply on God and God's faithfulness. God blesses. We are to be a blessing. And for far too many people, they just think, we're blessed. And if we were to look throughout the history of Christian Western Christianity, I mean, that has been a theme. If we were to look throughout the history of Western Europe, especially the last eight, seven hundred years. That has been the theme, that this we have thought of ourselves as blessed and therefore better than, superior to anyone else, better than our Christian brothers and sisters to the East, better than Muslims, by far better than Muslims, better than Jews, by far better than Jews, better than anyone of colour. We're white, we're Christian, proper Christian, we are blessed. We are superior. And that allows us to do, well, through the last thousand years, horrendous things. A lot of controversy about the Crusaders' name at the moment. Horrendous things. 
And all of that sits behind what happened on Christchurch. That person and his supporters think that they are blessed because they are white. And that allows them to do horrific things. And we look at that and we are appalled, we are disgusted, and yet that dark stain has run through the history of this country since settlers arrived. It is still here, still in the talkback, still on, the, on social media, still on the comments pages of uh, news outlets. We are white. We are blessed. We are better than anyone else. And that gives us the right to behave in extraordinarily bad ways. For those, like we're shocked, how could this happen here? But for those that work with the Muslim community, this is not a shock. As Dame Susan Bois said in a column in, uh, that she wrote shortly after the shootings, the warning signs have been here for a long time. As the Islamic Women's Federation said repeatedly to the government, to the security services, to the police, the amount of racial abuse, the amount of intimidation, the amount of Islamophobia that they were experiencing was growing. They feared for what might happen, and no one seems to have listened, because this couldn't happen here. And yet it was, because sadly, we think we're blessed, and we've forgotten that we were blessed to be a blessing. This blessed to be a blessing is, a, is at the heart of the covenant between Abraham, Abraham and God and Sarah, Sarah. And we can understand the whole of Scripture in light of that. The Torah was given to help the people of God understand what it meant to be blessed to be a blessing. And while we tend to focus on the moral bits of it and the cultic bits of it about the sacrifices in the temple, there was a strong line of social justice in there about how the poor were to be treated and how the alien and the stranger was to be treated that we simply ignore. That same blessed to be a blessing runs right through the prophetic tradition. And Jesus, well, Jesus can be understood as coming in his life to show us what it means to be blessed, to be a blessing. Which brings me to this week's really difficult and weird little passage from Luke 13, 31-35. Last week, uh, the first week in Lent, we looked at Jesus in the wilderness. And um, to, to kind of get into that story, I suggested we needed to go back to the previous week's Gospel reading from Luke, Luke 6, and I used the paraphrase of verse 45, it's who you are, not, not what you say or do that counts. Your true being brims over into true words and deeds. In light of that, using that passage, I said that this story of Jesus in the wilderness is not a temptation story as we often... It's not Jesus being tempted to behave poorly or immorally... But it's a test of who he is as Son of God. 
a story in the timeline just before Jesus is taken into the wilderness by the Spirit is when he is baptized and he hears a voice saying, you are my son, the beloved. And so the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God, the beloved? Well, Luke then, or somebody has inserted later, gives us his whakapapa, his genealogy, which finishes with son of Adam, son of God. There are lots of places where the phrase Son of God is used, applied to all sorts of people. You know, when, when we hear Son of God, we immediately come up with all sorts of theological ideas about Jesus being divine, da 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 da, da and he's the, you know, like all of that stuff. But actually in the Bible, that's, in the First Testament, Son of God is used to talk about important people. Adam is the Son of God. David is the Son of God. In the world that Jesus lived in, there were other sons of God. The Roman emperor was the son of God. It was in his title. Augustus Caesar, son of God. People sacrificed to him because he was the son of God. So when Jesus goes into the wilderness, he is tested. What kind of son of God will you be? It's not, are you the son of God? But since you are the son of God, what kind of son of God will you be? Will you be like the Roman emperor? Will you be like David? Will you be like Adam? What kind of Roman, what kind of son of God will you be? And I've suggested that, well, the son of God that Je Jesus understood his true self to be was that he would live out the generosity and the compassion and the hospitality, the justice and love of God. Because God is a God of generosity and compassion and hospitality, of love of justice. So his true self was anchored in that compassion, generosity, hospitality. His true sense of self was anchored in that love and that justice. And that true sense of self brims over into his words and actions. Words and actions of compassion, of generosity, of hospitality, of justice, of love. That's who God is. That's who He is as the Son of God. I've gone back to that because I think that helps us what's happening in this week's weird little reading. And it is a weird little reading. Scholars can't agree on much about what this reading is, whether it's, uh, you know, like whether, whether these two things really belong together, whether we can read them together. They can't agree on whether the Pharisees are being disingenuous or genuinely friendly they can't agree on what the third day means whether that's just a phrase or refers to the resurrection there's just lots of discussion about how we should read this but they all agree that this is another test maybe not from the devil but a test of who jesus is jesus sense of who he is uh, in luke 9 51 expresses itself when he sets his face to Jerusalem. So Jesus has set off from Galilee towards Jerusalem. He has been determinedly committed in this journey to Jerusalem. So when Pharisees come to him, whether they're being disingenuous or whether they genuinely think any friend of Herod is a friend of ours and they want to genuinely warn him and say, you need to go from here because Herod is com coming for you. His response is, I will not be dictated to by you or Herod or Pilate or anyone. 
My face is set to Jerusalem. I am on my journey here. Today I will heal. I will cast out demons. I will restore people. Tomorrow I will do that. And then I will continue my journey. And I will not be distracted from that. Because if I am distracted here, I will be super distracted when I get to Jerusalem. Jesus is determinedly committed to Jerusalem. He is determinedly committed to his sense of true self, which demands that he go there, demands that he die there. Now, Jerusalem is more than a place here. Sure, it is a place. It's an important place. It's a place where the temple is. But what is important is what it represents in the story and throughout Luke. It's more than a geographical place. Jerusalem is the place where heaven and earth kiss in the temple, where God's will is done on earth as in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray. It is the thin place. We hear people talk about thin places. Iona is a thin place. Lindisfarne is a thin place. People have talked about thin places here. But Jerusalem is the thin place. The thinnest of all thin places. Where heaven and earth touch. It symbolizes in that temple God's commitment through Abraham, through that covenant, blessed to be a blessing to humanity, to the people of God, and through them to humanity and to all creation. God's determination, God's determined commitment to the people of God and through them to all humanity and creation. It symbolizes God's commitment to hope. And it reminds us that hope is only found in God, not in what we do. Abraham didn't do anything. God offers the covenant. It was the place where the people of God lived out, blessed to be a blessing. But it was also a symbol of humanity's deep reluctance to desire anything more than being blessed. Which leads to Jesus' heartfelt lament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killer of the prophets, abuser of the messengers of God. How often have I longed to gather your children, to gather your children like a hen, your brood safe under her wings, but you refused and turned away. A few years ago I was on retreat down in Natiawa and I was outside praying one day and this chicken, this mother hen came towards me. The wings were out like a pyramid, and I could hear chip, 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 but I could not see any chickens. I was looking around, and I was thinking, why is that hen looking like a pyramid? And then the mother hen stopped and looked at me, and I looked at the mother hen, and the mother hen looked at me, and I looked at the mother hen, and then the mother hen must have worked out or decided that I was no threat, and the mother hen folded in her wings, and this brood of chickens just ran riots all over the place. She had gathered them in under her wings and she was protecting them from me until she could make sure that I was safe. Exactly as Jesus laments in this passage we heard today. 
You know, it's easy for us here this morning to wag our finger, to sit in judgment on those that committed those heinous acts on Friday, to wag our finger and, and, uh, and shake our heads at those Jews from so long ago who just couldn't get what Jesus was on about, that would not allow God to gather them under her wings like a mother hen who wouldn't listen to Jesus but instead crucified. But the reality is, but the reality is, we are no different. The reality is that they struggled to to understand what it meant to be blessed, to be a blessing. And, well, if we're honest with ourselves, so do we. So do we. Too often we revert back to just being blessed better than, superior to. But as that passage from Luke 6 reminds us, our true selves are found when we realise that we are indeed blessed to be a blessing. That as new temples, we are thin places where heaven and earth kiss, where God's will is done on earth. And that's hard work. Like, well, it's not hard work so much as we will fail. Like, let's be honest. A lot of the time we're going to forget, and a lot of the time we are just going to rest on being blessed. And sometimes we're not even going to feel that. Not blessed, not very good at being a blessing. We are no different from the people of God in Jesus' time. As the history of Western European Christianity has shown, we get it wrong so often. So what might we do in response to that? Well, I think we need to be as determinedly committed to hope as Jesus was. We need to be as determinedly committed to living out our true, true self as Jesus was and not being too hard on ourselves when we fail when we don't we could beat ourselves we could wear sackcloth and ashes or we could go I got it wrong I didn't do it today I'll try again tomorrow what is important is that we are determinedly committed to try each day to live blessed, to be a blessing. It's hard living our true selves. We will struggle to be as determinedly committed to hope as Jesus is. And do you know what? That first reading reminds us that's okay because it's not about our faithfulness. It's not about what we do. In the end, it's God's faithfulness that is important. Because God is faithful and God is deeply committed to this, as Jesus shows in the story. God will not relent, even in the worst of times. Even in the worst of times. We can trust that, at least. And because we can trust that, we can try again tomorrow. We can attempt to be blessed to be a lesson a blessing so what does that mean for us in this church as we reflect on 
last Friday. What does that mean for us? As we reflect on those horrific events. What does that mean for us as we stand with our Muslim brothers and sisters, as we weep with them, as we grieve with them? How do we respond to that? How might we be a blessing in this situation? Well, we have to be determinedly committed to God's justice, to God's compassion, to God's generosity. And for me, at least, that means I need to not let things slide. When I hear people being racist, when I hear people being calling all Muslims jihadists, radicals, I need to gently remind them that that's simply not true. That most Muslims simply want to live in peace. That those people who were praying in that mosque came here to escape the violence, to escape the radicals, to escape the extremists and the violence they brought. Because for them, they desire the same things that we do. And for them, their religion is a religion of peace and welcome. They didn't come here to stir up hate, but they encountered hate in our way of life, in our extremists. The tragedy is we have refugees who left areas of violence and war and came here for a safe life. The tragedy is we have people who live here who came here because of the extreme poverty of where they came from. We have people here who came here because of the violence of the extremists. And while their countries were still functioning well, They did not want their children to be open to that kind of abuse. They came here for safety. We must be determinedly committed to providing that. We must be determinedly committed to hope, to being blessed, to be a blessing. So invite us to stand and in silence for a few moments to remember all those who died in Christchurch For all those who are still in hospital, for their families, for those who mourn, for those, for the Muslim community around Aotearoa, New Zealand and the world as it reels in shock. I invite you to stand and in silence to remember those, the police, the first, the uh, St John ambulance officers and all those who responded, for all those whose lives are, are marked again by this trauma. And they should just stand for the people of Christchurch, re-traumatised by horrific events. And as you stand in silence, I invite you to pray for us that we will have the courage to be as determinedly committed to follow the example of Jesus. Because... It is who we are, not what we say or do, that counts. Our true being brims over into true words and deeds. Deeds of compassion, deeds of generosity, deeds of justice and love. When we do this, 
we will be blessed to be a blessing. Please stand.